want to do tonight before we get started. So we're on, uh, we're, we're teaching on uh, the uh, man, on manuscript evidence. This is a D discipleship two module, and we're doing it kind of in conjunction. So I'm going to give you two things. If you're just showing up, there's a packet on the connections counter out there. Everybody who was here last week got one, but if you don't have one, or if you you, you can get one, just get this is all the notes, almost all the notes. I've actually added a lot of stuff in the last 24 hours. Um, but you can get that, and then uh, there's a sheet, uh, one a single sheet out there, which I told you everybody I would make sure that you had the definitions of um, unique words that we throw around when we're talking about manuscript evidence. So those both are out there if you want a copy of them, if you want to keep track of where we're at. I'm not going to go through everything again tonight that we went over last week. I'm going to, I probably will go through it quickly just so I can get to this, my uh, slides synchronized with my notes about where I'm teaching at. But what I want to do right now is uh, I want to introduce to you one of our missionaries, uh, Lee Carter and his wife, Heather. She, she's here. She's, she's, she's in the building. And, uh, and so I, Lee has uh, come home. He just, uh, he just had a grandson born, what, a day and a half ago, you said? And so he'll tell you all about that. But that's just it's awesome that he's able to come and be a part of his family's uh, rejoicing in that. He's going down to see um see them as quick as he can get out of here he'll probably be on the road for there uh, but i have him coming because i want to do two things first off i want to have him because he was going to be passing through the area uh then i wanted him to stop and give an update on the ministry there in dominican republic D the dominican republic uh and uh, that's not that far away from here and so i want to lay on your heart a an opportunity sometime this year uh, to join with uh, with Jason McGuire, uh, who's going to be leading the team. I think he said that, so I'm going to go with that, and he hasn't backed out yet. So we're, we're going with that. So he's going to lead a team uh, to the Dominican to work with Lee and his team and his people there this year. And uh, let me just say one of the th cool things about going to the Dominican. It's close and it's cheap. It's not like going to India where it's like $1,800 to get on a plane. It's like, I don't know, what, $80? Okay, maybe a little bit more than that. But what, what do you fly from here to Florida and then Florida over? Um, I haven't checked tickets for the Dominican, so I'm not sure what the cost would be. Well, what, how do you, what, what's your routing? So you, we meet here here, and then we leave from Dominican to Atlanta. To Atlanta. And that was 120 Okay, so there you go. I mean, so that's, yeah, well, that's, but that's still a drop in the bucket compared to going to India. Uh, and so pray, pray about it. So we're going to be, you know, we don't have a date yet. So you pray about the dates fit everybody's calendar. And, uh, and so we're going to be working on that this, this evening after, the, after we're done tonight. But I'm going to have uh, Lee come up. He's going to share with you what's going on, show you some pictures, and, um, and, uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll go on from there. So Lee, come on up, man. It's good seeing you. Test, am I on? All right, amen. It's good to be back. It's good to be home. Uh, if I trip over some English words, forgive me. I got Spanish bouncing around in my head. So last night I was presenting somewhere, and I had two minutes to give an overview. And it was crazy because I was thinking in Spanish and spitting it out in English. It was really weird. It's the first time that's ever happened in my head. So um, in case you don't know, we're the Carters. I saw them enter in. To, that's my daughter, Bethany, back there. 
She is on the foreign field with us, her and her husband, Johnny. And then that's my mom sitting by her, Lucy Carter. And my beautiful bride is around here somewhere. I don't think she took the vehicle and left. So, um, <laughs> But it's a blessing to be able to be here. We are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the Dominican Republic. We are his ambassadors. And we are just trying to let people uh, meet Jesus. That's our goal. We want people to know him, not just know the words about him, not just know the stories, but to know Jesus Christ and what the testimonies of Christ mean. That's our goal. And so in the process of doing discipleship and sharing the gospel, the fruit of biblical discipleship is a church being planted. Okay? And so right now we are actively involved in two church plants, which is crazy. <laughs> it's nuts. Because I'm not even fluent yet. All right? But he has us in the opposite sides of the country right now planting two different churches. And that's just one prong of what's happening in the ministry. So let's look at some pictures. I could have showed, I mean, there's thousands. You ever tried to look through your photos and figure out which one you want to use to relay the vision, right? So this is the Dominican Republic. The right side of it is where we are. The left side's Haiti, and it's in total chaos right now. Haiti is a mess right now, and it's very dangerous. Uh, we are in the DR where it says Santa Domingo. That's us. That's this area. It's what, four miles wide? What you say, Beth? Usually I ask my wife these questions. Um, four miles wide, maybe. And it's about probably three, four miles up and down, north and south. And there's four to four and a half million people there. That's a lot of cars. That's a lot of motorcycles. Right? And it's nuts. It's New York on steroids. Okay? constant that was one of the shell shocks kind of for my family is you go from here to there and it's a whole different world okay whole different world so we live in Santa Domingo and uh, we we've moved three times twice we've moved twice um, it felt like three times the first time the place we moved into Fine, God opened the door, we moved in, good to go. The windows wouldn't close, which the mosquitoes love. Um, there was all kinds of issues. And so we said, Lord, we'll stay however long you want us to. And God opened the door somewhere else within 30 days. So we moved the second time. Funny story. Found it through Airbnb. Locked it down for a year, Right? Because if you do that, you don't have to have a real, a real estate contract in their country. If you do it that way, if you do it any other way, you're going to have to pay three or four months up front with a real estate contract. Okay? And that means a whole bunch of other people are going to get paid too. Right? So the most economical way was to lock it down through Airbnb. We did. Ten months into that, the Dominican Mafia showed up. Seriously. Blocked me in. We're pulling out. It's Wednesday night. We're headed to Valiente to do church service. 
they cut off the road, and my car was surrounded by about 15 guys. Okay? Apparently, the owner owed the mafia a whole lot of money. The owner also owed the bank a whole lot of money. And so they were attempting to get into the apartment and collect everything that was in the apartment. And God handled it. I don't have time to share all the details of that one, but God handled it. We moved within two months of that happening. And where we're at right now is perfect. It's by the university, the major university. And uh, so we are right where we need to be to be able to reach a whole bunch of people with where we live. So it's perfect. God made it clear to us he wanted a church planted in an area called Valiente. Valiente is about 45 minutes from where we live. It has roughly 25 to 30,000 people there. Right? We went into Valiente. Um, during the pandemic, we cheated. You weren't supposed to be able to do it. We, we did by, saying, by doing humanitarian efforts. And so you remember the flip-flops? That's how we got in there. That's how we got in there. Because if we were taking in something for the community, they could come and get it. So when they came to get the flip-flops, guess what they got? The Word of God and flip-flops, right? And so that's how we started in Valiente. It's because God used your flip-flops. So thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so we've been working. It takes a while to build trust. And God's just doing insane things. So in Valiente, I divided it into 18 sectors. Um, everything like one, two, three, four, five, eight, and nine, that's like Africa. I mean, there's dirt streets, dirt floors, next to nothing. On the other side is a beat up and very bad shape wannabe example of a city. You've got paved streets on that side. You've got some better concrete buildings, better floors, but it's still a mess, okay? But the right side is a little better off than the left when it comes to financials, okay? So Johnny started working with me, and I'm going to show you in the slideshow. Johnny started working with me full-time, which is huge. That's my daughter's husband, and he's bilingual, and he loves Jesus, amen? And so we have an incredible, just an incredibly powerful team, all right? And so we have started the process. We, we planted where it says number one right there. That's where we currently have the church plant. We meet on Wednesdays at 530 and Sundays at 530. It ranges, we're meeting outside in what we would call a cul-de-sac type environment. We do not have a building, right? If it rains, we jump into one of the houses, and you get to know your friends real quick, all right? Seriously, the first time it started raining, guy's house we went into had never been to the church. Seriously, we invaded his house with 12 people, and we're not talking the normal American mentality house. We're talking little, so we filled his house. Right, um, So we have anywhere from, if it's dumping rain, two. 
adults to 40. Okay? It just like, it's just like here. Sometimes people come, sometimes they don't. All right? But we are discipling them. And it is growing like crazy. And these people love Jesus. There's seven solid families that are participating in this. And that's huge to say that in that area. Okay? So it's really cool what God's doing there. This is a, so a picture on the left is of one of the church services. Picture on the right, fun story. Uh, we were coming home. Was it Wednesday night or Sunday night, Heather? Do you remember? So it's Sunday night, and we're driving home. I turn the corner, one of the streets, and there's just a group of young men walking down the street. There's a gang. And so I stopped the car. Yanni hopped out with me, and we said, hey, come here, come here, come here, and start sharing the gospel with them. That night there was 19 of them standing there, and one of them accepted Christ. Right? That's a miracle, you guys. You're sharing the gospel with a gang, and one of them received Christ. It's more common to say all of them did than to say one of them did. All right? That was not easy for him to do in front of them. Well, we, we made the offer. Hey, who wants to hear more? Who wants to learn more? Because they were all listening. Nobody walking away. And they said, well, yeah, we want to hear more. We want to learn more. When are you going to come back? You know, and I'm going four days a week. But I said, well, when, when will you meet with me? We'll meet with you on New Year's Day. Come on, really? It was, it was about a week away. But how many people know a teenager that's going to be willing on New Year's Day to come and meet with you when they've been out all night, right? I said, okay, if, if you will come, I will come. And so New Year's Day, Johnny and I, we went. We went to where they said they'd meet us. That's New Year's Day on the right-hand side. Okay? All those guys accepted Christ their Savior. Right? So we're still missing some, but a good crew of them showed up that day. some of the young ladies in the church, and then Wilmer, right? The guy in the back right there is being discipled. Now when Johnny and I go and walk through a neighborhood, Wilmer comes with us. When we go and walk to the businesses, Wilmer comes with us. When, when I'm teaching, I'm picking on Wilmer all the time. He's growing like crazy, and he's, he's changing completely. It's really cool what God's doing in his life. And look at those smiles, right? Okay, so I don't know why I was preaching, but they weren't very happy, were they? Um, <laughs> but they're there. And look what he's holding. Right? They're listening. They're there. They want to grow. That's a reign of Valera. No, <laughs> no, that's a, it's the equivalent of the KJV in Spanish, okay? So what Johnny and I do, here's my schedule real quick. Mondays, off, because we're exhausted by Monday, right? Tuesday, 
Johnny and I go. We start off with meetings in the city with other pastors and leaders that we're partnered with, sharing the vision and talking about what, what's next and how do we accomplish it. What's the Bible say and where are we going to go, right? We go from there. We start traveling to Valiente, which from where we start at, it's probably about an hour and a half. So as we start traveling to Valiente, Johnny and I are going through discipleship. Johnny is discipled, but we're going through the discipleship material that we're using because I expect him to do what I'm doing. I want him to, if my heart stops beating, it's his. Okay? And so we do that in the car on the way there, start talking about things. We get there, we pick up Wilmer, and we start walking the streets. Jesus met people where they were at. That's what we're doing. So we go to the first house, introduce ourselves. Hey, we're in, the, we're in the area. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not here for one week. We're planting a church. We want you to know who Jesus is. Teach me. Teach me about your neighborhood. Teach me about your family. I want to get to know you. We need to be working together. And they, they will stop, they will take the time, and we sit there. And then I ask them the question, if your heart stops beating, what would happen? Are you 100% sure you're going to go to heaven? And we introduce them to Jesus. They either receive it or they don't. And if they don't, we come back. Right? If they do, we come back. Right? So house by house, explaining to them the vision that God's given us for Valentine. Okay? That's Tuesdays. People are getting saved like crazy. Okay? On Wednesday, we have service at 5.30. So we're, we're having church. 5.30. On Thursdays, we go into a different area. I'll show it to you in a minute. And we're doing discipleship with a group of young men. On Fridays, we go back into Valiente. And we start in the morning, and we're walking the main street that has the businesses. If I go back, it's that main street right down the middle, that yellow line right down the middle. That has businesses all the way down it. So we start, we park at one end, and we started walking business to business. I walk in, I say, who's the owner? Because it's common for the owner to be in these shops. And they, they get the owner. We introduce ourselves and ask them, how long you been here? What's your vision for your business in Valiente? What are your goals? And they share because, I mean, they love talking about the businesses, right? That's their passion. And then I say, okay, I want to share with you the vision God's given us for Valiente. So we share the vision God's given us for Valiente because you're talking to a vision-oriented person. And I say, Okay, how do we work together to accomplish our visions? What can we do to help? And then I share with them, here's what you can do to help. We show them we're, we're here. We're fully invested. We're not going anywhere. And these business owners are getting saved. And then they're saying, how can we help? And they want to be part of it. It's really cool. So that's what we do on Friday. So we're going down the street. On Friday, we got in the car. We actually leaving. 
and I see a big old group of young men on the right at a car wash, and I tried to keep driving, and God said, go back. So we turned around, we went back, we walked up in, we shared the gospel, the owner of the business is in that group too, everybody you see on that screen, except for the white guy in the middle, ignore him, and the guy on the far right, that's Wilmer. Remember I said the disciple? That's Wilmer there with me. Okay, and Johnny. Johnny's taking the picture. Okay, so everybody else you see accepted Christ as their Savior. Amen? Woohoo! Right? At a car wash. Here's what's happened the owner got saved and he's serious. He said, Come back. Okay, every Tuesday now at four o'clock. We have a Bible study at Car Wash. Isn't that cool? He has went from trying to do business while we did the Bible study to shutting the whole thing down now. Nobody plays pool because there's a pool table there. Nobody buys anything from his store during that time. No cars are being washed. If you're there, you're going to hear the word. The barber shop, it started dumping one day, so we ducked into the barber shop, shared the gospel with the victims that were in there, right? Um, and three of them accepted Christ. Two of them were already saved, but backslid is what we would say, right? Well, they got excited, and so now the barbershop closes every Tuesday at 4 o'clock for an hour, and they walk over to the car wash. The cell phone guy who works on people's cell phones across the street, except Christ is his Savior, right? He closes his shop now. Every Tuesday at 4 o'clock comes the Bible study. Okay, God's moving. Amen? Doesn't that just get you excited? I can't tell. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> right? Guys, I want to make sure you understand. This is fruit laid to your account. This is your fruit you're hearing about. Amen? All right. It's exciting stuff. So Tuesdays at 4 o'clock, we have that. Thursdays, coming back to Thursdays, we go to Monte Plata. It's about an hour and a half from us. There's a baseball academy there with 25 to 30 top prospects. We're not talking guys hoping they're going to make it. It's a matter of you only have them for so long because they're going to get signed. Five of them got signed about three weeks ago, wasn't it? One of them got signed for just under $5 million, and he won't see the United States for probably two or three years. Okay, so this is big business and it's serious there. So one of our partners has a relationship with the guy who runs the academy because his boys were in his academy, right? So we go there and we teach the word of God every Thursday. Isn't that cool, right? All but two of them, to the best of my knowledge right now at this point, have accepted Christ. And we have started what I would call a biblical foundations process. I wouldn't call it discipleship yet. I'd call it a biblical foundations process. Where they're learning which way's up in the Bible. Okay? And which way's up in Christianity. Right? So that's, that's the baseball academy. Monte Cristi is a whole other subject. I was minding my own business one day and people said, Hey, we're going to Monte Cristi because God wants to, is telling us go and God's doing something. Lee, we want you to go. Okay. Why not, right? So we go to Monte Cristi. 
Monte Cristi, we get there. We're scoping it out. And there's 13 pastors that we're going to be meeting with on Friday morning. And the mayor and the governor and everybody who has any important authority is going to be at this meeting. It's an opportunity to share the, the, the vision of biblical discipleship. Right? So we go... And we start doing this, and we know God's telling us, look, there's a place here that we want you to plant a church too. Okay? So God's saying plant a church here, and we're there, vision casting, biblical discipleship. Okay? So in the research and learning, there's 14 neighborhoods, and 13 of them have a, a church. Makes it kind of simple to figure out where God wants you to go plant a church, doesn't it? All right? So we go into that meeting, we're sharing everything with all the important people, and the driver slash photographer for the governor, or mayor, no, the governor, after we get done sharing everything, he pulls the vehicle up for them to be able to load in it and comes running up to me and one of the other guys and says, I need Jesus. Twist my arm, right? So he accepts Christ as his Savior, on the city hall steps, guess what neighborhood he lives in? Where we're going to go plant a church. God just confirmation, confirmation, confirmation. So we get in the neighborhood, we start walking the streets. And there's a team of about 10 people with us. We're walking the streets, sharing the gospel, just walking up to somebody. Hey, hey, I'm Lee. Nice to meet you, Dale. Tell me what you know about Jesus. Right? And that's what we're doing in the streets. You know, because why is there not a church there? That, that was my question. Everyone's like, oh, there's no church there. Let's go. And I'm going, mm, hang on. Push the brakes. There's a reason why there ain't no church there. Let's see if we can figure it out so we know what we're walking into. Right? So we're walking the streets. And an impromptu celebration of Jesus Christ breaks out when we get to one of the corners. One of, one of the guys on our team just starts singing. Here we go. Okay. So Pastor Sam Wells starts singing, and he can sing. And, and I can't sing in Spanish. So that's just a sight you do not want to hear. <laughs> okay. And so we're having fun. I grab my cajon box drum because I love, man, it is so much fun. I can jam out and some praise with that. We're having a good time. Pastor Samuel, imagine this, Pastor Hedges. Pastor Samuel, we're in an environment, no translators. He looks over his shoulder at me. Hey, preach. From this passage. Preach, no problem, but this passage, right? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. She said in Spanish. So I did. The Holy Spirit took off. He just took over. It was so cool. I didn't have any problems. None speaking it. And there's this one man there who's just got tears running down his cheek. It's the guy on that left. Tears running down his cheek. We gave the invitation. Man, he's on his knees on a gravel, ugly street. Praying to God. We get done, he gets up, and he's saved now. <coughs> he gets up and he says, can you come to my house? I said, 
Panthers. Can I get some water, please? Can come to my house. He wasn't taking no for an answer. One of my partners, Israel, got on a motorcycle because he said, get on my motorcycle. And we followed him to his house. He wanted his, mo- his, the, he wanted his wife to know. His wife got saved. Their daughter lives next door. It's very common in this country. Daughter lives in a house next door. She got saved. Granddaughters came in. School was done. So you got like a 11 and 12-year-old granddaughters that come in. Guess what they did? They got saved. This whole family got saved. This guy's heart's incredible. He has what we would call a garage out back behind his house. And he's divided the garage into five areas. So there's five Haitian families living in this garage. They all have their own little strip of this garage. There's a man there who can translate from Spanish to Creole, which is hard to find. Imagine that right there. And every single one of them have accepted Christ now. So that night, we go back to have our team meeting. And, and one of the main leaders of the team says, hey, we think you and your wife should stay for two more days. We're like a stone's throw from Haiti. There's a team of 200 people there with us now. Woohoo! feel nice and comfy, right? But what happens when all 200 of them leaving it's you and your wife? You're a target. Being real with you, y'all are at that point. Doesn't matter. We stayed. We started pouring into them, right? Had a great time starting the process of discipleship. They are four and a half hours from where we live. Every two weeks, we are going to be going back for one night, two days, and pouring into them because that's the man of peace. That's the house where God wants to start it. And that's his wife on the right-hand side. Look what she's reading out of. Right? And uh, she's been around Christian songs her whole life. We, that first, that was Sunday, the first Sunday, she was singing Christian songs in Spanish, just praising God. No instruments, nothing like that. Nobody what it sounded like because it was praise. Amen? So let me back up a little bit. So this, on the left, that's Monteplata. It's absolutely beautiful, gorgeous. Ain't going to try and hide it from you. I didn't put the beach picture up there, though. Um, that one was a little bit funny. We're on a Caribbean island. We went to the beach right, for 30 minutes. And, but on the right, the place we were staying at, the owner of the apartment that we crammed, how many people into? <laughs> Whoops. We put, like, 12 people in there. <laughs> we were having fun. But that's the owner. She's accepting Christ, her Savior, because she had to come deal with, we woke up and didn't have any water, so she was trying to help us. And uh, so she accepts Christ, and her or her mom, that lives so her guess what neighborhood her parents live in <laughs> where we're playing at the church <laughs> it's just crazy what god does you guys anyway so that's them and that's Monteplata. we have been richly blessed that's johnny on my left 
And that's Johnny in the, the blue shirt standing at the end of the baptistry. And uh, Pastor Hedges, I have learned the value of sending people to the foreign mission field in twos. My wife and I don't count as two. We are one. But I have learned the value. And he is, uh, in my mind, irreplaceable. He's bilingual. He loves Jesus, and he was my friend first. He was my friend before. I, I knew him for a year and a half before my daughter knew him. Right? And he has openly, publicly stated, if he had known she was my daughter, he would have never spoke to her. <laughs> Bro code, right? Anyway, so, but he is my right-hand man. And he is part of everything. I thought I had one more slide. Can you hit spacebar for me? He is part of everything. Sometimes I preach in Valiente, sometimes he preaches in Valiente. Sometimes I tell him ahead of time, sometimes I don't. Right? Right now, while we're here, embassy, we couldn't get him in the country. We tried everything I know. Tried everything I know. Wanted him here bad. But God has his reasons, right? God wouldn't let Paul into Asia at one point. Well, he wouldn't let my best friend and my wife or my daughter's husband come to the U.S. this time. But he's preaching in Valiente while we're here. And he's taking care of my wife's Christmas present. She got a dog. <laughs> so it's good practice. They got a kid coming. My, my daughter's due at the end of May. Right? So he's taking care of a, a, a new dog. God's moving in mighty ways. There's, I could go for the next day about things. I've narrowed it down to three places. We are part of a team that when they say go, we go somewhere and we share the gospel. We'll do anything we can. We're trying to show people that we're here to partner with them for, for the purpose of casting the vision of biblical discipleship. Specifically, I want to cast that to pastors, right? So we are training a lot of pastors right now in what is biblical discipleship. And that probably sounds really odd to you guys. Because you're blessed beyond measure with it, okay? I walked into Mardell's today and almost started crying. Because I was able to walk into a store and go pick up a bilingual Bible and buy it. The things that I have taken for granted in my life. I'm learning very quickly about those. We need your prayers. We need your prayers. The spiritual warfare over the last two years has been rough. But we need your prayers. Right? Because there ain't no quit in us. That's not going to happen. But those people need your prayers. Right? We need you to be praying, please. If you can join, if you're not currently involved in a prayer group for missions, I know one. Okay? And we've had, so real quick, there's a team. I don't know how much time I don't have. 
There's a team that came in November, end of, no, end of October. They came, spent six days with us. We saw 150 people receive Christ. We saw 13 or 14 take the first step of obedience in baptism, right? And we saw the people who came change. The pastor says, man, they're not the same, okay? And so we are inviting open invitation. Randy, we're going to be, Pastor Randy, we're going to be speaking about it more. Sounds like you're the leader of it, right? We would like you to come. We want you to experience what God's doing in the Dominican, right? And, and I guarantee you'll see him move. I guarantee you'll share the gospel. I guarantee you'll get to see the fruit because that's what's happening in your life, okay? So am I out of time? <laughs> I had to do that. <laughs> You guys are a huge blessing to us. My wife keeps telling me this. That's why I keep asking you guys to come out. I'm defaulting to the different authority. But we love you guys, and you guys mean the world to us. And it is a huge blessing to be able to stand here today with you and be able to share what God's doing. Paul came back, and he gave reports. We're here to give you a report of what God's doing through you in the Dominican Republic. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for the time. Yeah, that's why we went out, wanted him to come tonight. Uh, I mean, I'm a little tight on our schedule tonight to have him be able to stop by and, and visit with us, but I really wanted him to uh, just share everything that he's doing. And I, yeah, I know he could go all night, and he, you know, he's got a lot of stories, and he's got a lot of things going on, and uh, I hate to to hold him back, but here's the thing. I wanted him to whet your appetite to be a part of that, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know the dates on the trips or anything. That's what we got to work out, but I was thinking about, it. well, what if I get more people that want to go on a trip than we can put on a trip? We'll do two, Amen. or maybe three. Uh, I mean, when I, when we first met, uh, the, the Carters, in my heart, I said, you know, that's not that far away. We could take trips there a lot of times. And you'd already had, I don't know how many times you have churches come throughout the year, but several times. We don't want to hog it all, but we do want to partake in it all. And, uh, and at the same time, he mentioned, and I'll mention again, uh, uh, David Brandon leads his prayer team. And if you want to get in on what he's doing, you want to be connected as closely as possible but not be there, then you hook up with David and find out when they're meeting. I think it's usually published in the bulletin um, in the next meetings. So uh, sign up for that. That is, that is part of what prayer teams are all about, is to, is to be a part of all of those kind of things. So anyway, I'm, let me get my, my notebook. We're going to try to make some progress here with what, what I'm actually here for. Um, and so... Uh, Anyway, when, once we get this, the, the trip details laid out, um, we'll announce it. We'll put it in the bulletin. You can sign up, and uh, how we'll handle all of that, depending on how many people want to uh, be a part of it or go on this trip, we'll figure that out. And if we have to come up with a, a secondary trip, we'll, we'll do that as well. 
Um, there's other trips that we're trying to plan as well, so don't think this is the only thing that we're going to do this year. We've got, we already have, uh, well, every year we go to Monmouth in November, the first week of Monmouth, so first week of November we go to Monmouth, so just keep that in mind. Uh, that's an important trip, the partnership with um, um, Maple City Baptist Church, and so that's already, that's on our calendar. It's just always. Uh, Ray Blowers, I believe, is going to lead that team again this year, and uh, and so you can do that, and uh um, there was another trip um, Oaxaca thank you that was the one I was trying to think of and then I'll get to the, the other one so um, uh, Mitch Newland is leading the team back to Oaxaca with uh, Joe Hendrickman I think that's going to be October's time frame that may counter or they may cross a little bit with the trip to uh, Mammoth. I don't know exactly what the dates are but that's a trip and then uh, Pastor Brian and Chris Cohen will be probably leading another team to Boston uh, to work with the church there. Uh, Mike um, Renault, thank you. Mike Renault has planted a church in, in Boston, and uh, and so they they took a team there last year that had a really a uh, lot of fruit from that and a lot of a lot of blessings. So that'll be another trip. So we already got these on the, on the, on you know planning already. If you want to go on a disciple on a mission trip sometime this year, we've got plenty of them, and we'll get them out once we get them uh, all the, some of the details laid out. Then we'll get that taken care of and get get you to know when um, knowing the information yourself. So, okay. So what what I want to do, and I, I only got about forty minutes, so we're gonna fly. Uh, so hang on. So what I want to do, like I said earlier, I just need to get my the PowerPoint slides synchronized with my notes. So I'm just going to go blow through this kind of quickly. Uh, I'm not going to pause long enough where you can fill out the blanks. You just grab somebody that was here last week, or you can listen to the video from last week online and get the video, get the blanks in there. So anyway, we're talking about um, it ain't clicking through. Okay, so anyway. It's on. I don't know. It's blinking. Maybe I need a battery. Okay. Well, anyway, let me just kind of tell you where we're at. So, um, so this is the, the discipleship two module, and um, and so what I wanted to do is is I need to get to. I added some material from uh, this this past week. I decided I needed to add some more material, and then last night I added even more material that you don't have that in the handout yet. That'll be the last thing I want to talk about. Um, we might have to go an extra day because I got I got more material than you have notes right now. Uh, I mean, I teach 16 weeks in the Bible Institute, and I'm not going to give you all 16 weeks worth of material, but there's things that I think you need to have to be clear on one things. Is that it? So Lee ran the battery down. Okay, so real quick, you know, the eternal nature of the Bible. I'm just going to kind of talk off the slides because I'm going to go quickly. Uh, the Bible is one book, even though it's made of 66 separate writings. I think everybody knows that. There's two lines of evidence uh, because of the consistency of the Bible and because of the progressive revelation of the Bible. And I explained what progressive revelation meant. Uh, means basically God reveals things progressively through, starting in the Genesis all the way through the, old, through the book of Revelations. He progressively reveals things, and that's the, that's the beauty of the Bible. You can uncover truth through progressively studying the Bible. Uh, and then number two is the Bible is a, part, is a, a particular kind of book because it is a record 
And this record is a duality. Uh, it's a record of God, uh, what God is doing, and it's a record of God's people and what God wants his people to do. So there's a duality of the study there. And the Bible is also a particular kind of record because it is divine revelation. There's four things that I give you that, that if you're talking to somebody, how do you know the Bible's real? This is give you four things real quick. Number one is a revelation with divine authority. Most of the people in the world today hate that word. Not Bible, they hate authority. They don't like authority. So that by, by, by default, that means they don't like the Bible either. Number two is the authentic, authentic, I can't say that word, authenticity of, the, of, of uh, genuine authority, authorship and authority. So basically the Bible is written by one person. Even though it had several authors, uh, there's, one, there's one author, and that's God. Uh, and the record of revealed, the record revealed that could not be known by any other way. That, that you have to, if, if you're not in the Bible, you're going to miss a lot of truth in the world. And then the fourth thing is that God's historical revelation uh, matches, I can't read that, science exactly. Yeah, it matches science accurately. Okay, so I'm going to keep going. The Bible has a message of the present salvation of the requirement for entry into the future coming kingdom. The Bible's only the Bible's the only source that tells you how to get into the kingdom that's coming. And the Bible's very clear. You need to be saved. And so we heard that, that uh, uh, Lee and his team are leading lots of people to the, to, to, uh, to, to the kingdom through salvation through Jesus Christ. So we're thanking we thank God for that. Um, manuscript evidence when you turn them so we're talking about manuscript evidence what does that mean it's a historical evidence recovered through various means that support the validity of the bible so when we say manuscript evidence so that's uh the the, the idea of evidence a lot of people like to say well the scientific evidence proves the bible doesn't exist well let me tell you what the scientific evidence proves that the bible is accurate so manuscript evidence the manuscript, the Bible, evidence for the Bible. That's what this study is all about. In particular, the evidence also confirms the validity of, in particular, the King James Bible. So what I told everybody last week when we were here, uh, why, do we, why does this church use the King James Bible? Because it's true. And we're going to examine the evidence about how we know it is true. That's what that's all about. That's why we use the King James Bible, because we believe it is the truth. Uh, and then Amos chapter 8, I'm not sure where my in, in, I'm at in my notes yet. <laughs> um, can't find it yet. We're getting there. But anyway, we'll just keep going. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, and Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. That I can read, I think. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth or mercy nor knowledge of God in the land that doesn't have to be true in your life because the Bible gives you all of that gives you the knowledge of, the, of God and so on okay so there's a couple of quotes that I wanted to share with people about some like John Walton you may not know who he is but he was a scholar he said it's just I really I like this quote because this defines the Bible he says it, it's just shallow enough so that the most timid swimmer may enjoy the waters without fear, and yet deep enough for the most expert swimmer to enjoy it without touching the bottom. Now think about what that means. The Bible, if you're, if you're just a new Christian or you don't, you're really not sure how to, how to go about studying the Bible, you might want to wade in ankle deep. Just go in deep. 
or shallow. But then some people, through D2 and HBI and so on like that, they want to take the deep dive and go as deep as they can and try to get the deepest doctrinal truths out of the Bible that they can. That's that deep dive. Unfortunately, you'll never get to the bottom of the Bible. That's what it's talking about. Uh, this other quote here is from John Cummings. He said, the empire of, of Caesar is gone. The legions of Rome are rotting in the dust. The avalanches that Napoleon hurled at Egypt have melted away. The pride of the, of the pharaohs is fallen. Tyre is but a rock bleaching fishermen's net. And Sidon has scarcely left a wreck behind. But the word of God still survives. Forever and forever, the word of God still survives. Um, I think many people may be familiar with the name Thomas Paine from history. Okay, this is what he said. No, this is a different quote. Let me go back up. Where am I at here? Yeah, this is a French philosopher Voltaire. Um, I lost my place on my notes. Anyway, I'll read that if I best I can. The famous French philosopher said that a hundred years after his death, the Bible would be would be would pass into history like ancient relics. Well, he died many years ago. He and so that didn't happen. Thomas Paine, here we go. Thomas Paine says, in five years from now, there will not be a Bible in America. This is Thomas Paine. There will not be a Bible in America. I have gone through the Bible with an axe and cut down all its trees. What a statement to be. That's pretty arrogant. Um, and so the key issue of the Bible is, as I said earlier, is the authority, the authority of the Bible. Uh, so I'm just going to go past these real quick because I don't want to. This is all in the notes, and you can get you can catch up with the notes later. So authority, accuracy, and availability are the key things about the Bible uh, that we started to get into last week, but we're not going to get into right now. Uh, so I gave you a sheet of definitions, and I was going to go through the definitions, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through them. You've got the sheet that I handed out. If you didn't get it, it should be out there on the connections counter. Uh, if it's if they're all gone, I'll make some. But I have one here. You guys, somebody can come up and claim this one if you want it. Um, but uh, when we're talking the concept of manuscript evidence, there's a lot of words that we use to have this conversation. And so I wanted you to have that those words as well. There's I don't know about 25 of them. I'm not going to go through them all today. I um, I was, but I'm not now. Okay. So the Bible is one book. I think I'm about where I want to be. So just to give you a couple of facts about the Bible real quick, there are 66, chapter, 66 books in the Bible. They're, uh, they're arranged in a specific order, and then they're further divided into there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Uh, there's 31,102, somebody counted them all up, verses. The Oxford University Press took the time to number the words, and they came up with 783,137. Uh, others claim, now see, some people counted one, got one list, and somebody counted another list of 788,258. So there's a lot of words in the Bible. Um, if somebody could memorize the whole Bible, that'd be pretty cool. Um, it's if you on your you know on your phone and on your computers and stuff it's a it doesn't take up a whole lot of space and believe it or not you can read the bible in 72 to 78 hours the entire bible from front to finish if you give the bible an hour a day you could be done in 
less than, th- less than three months reading the Bible. Did anybody know that? Did anybody time yourself how long you read the Bible? That's a pretty cool th- uh, statistic. When I heard that, I'm like, there's no way. Because it takes me forever to read. I'm a slow reader. Okay, but if you could read through it, it would take you supposedly 20 to 25 pages. You could get it done in every two months, supposedly. Um, so the Bible has, as I said, it has many books. The first five books are by Moses. They were all originally written on one scroll. Uh, the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles were originally one book. I don't even know if everybody realizes that. First, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, first, second uh, Samuel, they were all one book originally. The, bio, the books were got divided in their proper sections or the sections that we have them today and arranged in dispensational order uh, in which we now see them. That was all done under God's uh, uh, guidance. Now, we don't know the person that did all of this, but we know the Holy Spirit did it. And some people say that our current Bible is arranged this way because of the Septuagint Greek translation, which we'll get to later on, uh, but that's not really true. So what I do want to just mention real quick is um, about the chapter divisions. You ever wonder why we have certain chapters in a certain way, why we have so many verses and so on? So here's, here's the thing. In the middle of the 13th century, there was a cardinal, Catholic guy, lost guy, didn't know anything to do and didn't know what the Bible was, but God used him anyway. His name was Hugo, uh, and despite the fact that he was a Catholic, God used him uh, to, to divide the, each, each book of the Bible into chapters. And this is consistent in how God operates. God does use lost people to accomplish his plan. And, and whatever it is, God will use whoever he needs to use to get it, get it done. Uh, after all, he's able to use the Roman occupation of Palestine to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in the fullness of time for the birth of the Messiah. I mean, just think about that. God, that's how God works. He uses people to do what he needs to do in order to get what, he want, what he's planning. Um, In the middle of the 16th century, the whole Bible had been divided up into chapters, but only the Old Testament had verses. And in the Jewish Bible, the content is the same, but some of the books were combined in, in a different order and so on. So the New Testament has no, had no verses by then. But then there was a French, um, let's see where am I at here. It was a French rabbi named Mordecai, Nathan. And he wanted to prepare a concordance to enhance the study of the Hebrew Bible. So he divided the Old Testament into verses that followed uh, Hugo's chapter division. So your English Bible has Hugo's chapter divisions and Nathan's verse divisions for, for the Old Testament. Then, there would, then, uh, then the New Testament had no verses either. And that was when the French, a French pr- printer who was publishing the Greek New Testament named Roger Stevens, Robert Stevens, as he began to publish, he adopted Hugo's chapters and, Re- and Rabbi Nathan's verses and added himself the verses of the New Testament and published it in 1551. So that's when we started seeing verses, the division, verse divisions of the Bible was in 1551, both the Old and the New Testament. About 15 years after that, uh, the English Archbishop Parker published the entire English Bible with all the chapters and all the verses that you see now. So this is what God did. He gave you an English Bible in the present form, meaning chapter and verse divisions, the postscripts, the epistles, the superstructure, the superscriptions of the Psalms by using a Catholic cardinal, a Jewish rabbi, and a Protestant bishop Bible publisher to produce a Bible. No, that's not a joke. That is awesome. I think that's pretty cool. So you can't say that God is not ecumenical. 
He uses everybody. This is not. This was providential, and it is how God operates when He wants to give people with bad hearts an excuse to trip and fall. And I think God is showing us His humorous side. So maybe it was a joke that God did that. I don't know. So the Bible is also written in how many? How many languages do you think the Bible was originally written in? Anybody know? Yeah, three, three languages. Here we go. So first you got Hebrew. Uh, the Bible was originally written in three languages. The first one was Hebrew. Now, Heber was the, was the last of Seth's line before the Tower of Babel. Heber is the one from which the name Hebrew comes from. I think everybody probably knows that from Bible study. Hebrew probably, probably preserves the original language that God gave Adam and Eve. Now, we don't know that for sure, but I'll go with that. Uh, some people think Spanish is, is, the, is God's language. Some people think... Um, other languages are, but I don't know. I think God used the Hebrew for a reason. But anyway, the, so, uh, most, of the, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Uh, it was also written with Aramaic, sometimes called Chaldean or Aramean or Syriac in the Old Testament. So when God's people went into captivity, uh, Hebrew died, and the Aramaic became the language of the Jews while, when they were out of fellowship with God. There's three books, and three books only, in which Aramaic is actually used. Now, we're not going to take the time to turn to, the, turn to that passage, but in Jeremiah chapter 10, uh, there's, I think I've got it listed there. Jeremiah 10, 11, the triumphing, triumphant Gentiles are informed in their own language that their false gods are doomed to complete destruction. That's in Jeremiah chapter 10. And then in Ezra chapter 4, starting in chapter 4 and going in all the way through chapter 6, um, and then also in chapter 7 a little bit, the the Gentile con conquerors are informed in their own language of God's continuing interest in his people who are just emerging out of captivity. So he spoke, basically, he wrote, he allowed it to be written in Aramaic to speak to the Gentile leaders. And then in the book of Daniel, chapter 2 through chapter 7, God informs the Gentile monarch in his own language of the rise and the fall of his dominion in his kingdom. And so Aramaic uh, then goes to Greek. In the New Testament, now Matthew wrote the gospel in, uh, to the Jews. James wrote the, to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Peter wrote to the Jews of the dispersion, and Peter and Paul wrote to the Hebrews. But everybody wrote in Greek in the Old Testament. Hmm? That's what I meant. That's why she's here. She keeps me straight because I'm trying to move quick. I still got a lot of stuff here that I want to get to. I hope you're all tracking with me in the notes now. You should be. Not, you're not? I was hoping you'd figure that out. Well, I don't know what page the language is on in the notes, but you can, that's about where we're at. You do. You can't keep up? My, okay, I'm moving too fast. Jewel, let me see your notes. What's that? It's in this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did go through this last week. What page am I on in my own notes? Nope. You know why? Because that's the new stuff I added. <laughs> hey, you know, I got a brain condition. <laughs> okay, I'll slow down. Okay, so I started, um, 
Uh, talking about the Bible as one book. Let me, let me, I'll just back up. Because I was going pretty fast. Let me get to the right page. That's the this definitions. So there we go. The Bible is one book. So this is not in your notes right now. I think for the next four pages is not in your notes. For my my four pages. Okay, so I gave you some numbers if you want to write them down. I think everybody knows there's 66 books in the Bible. Uh, there's 31,102 verses, 783,137 words. Does anybody know what the center Bible center verse is? Close. It's in Psalms. Psalms 118. Um, Psalms 118, verse 8. Now, depending on what, sequence, what numbers you use, either the 783,137 or the 788,256, that, that verse is still the same verse. That's still the center verse. Uh, and the middle, the middle of the verse says, bless his holy name. That's what that verse says in the middle of that verse, bless his holy name. I didn't say that earlier. Um, so it's about 4.5 gig and you can read the Bible in about 72 to 78 hours, 78. If you're fairly slow, like me, I'd probably take 85, but, um, anyway, then, um, then I talked about the chapter divisions, um, chapter divisions that the Roman Catholic, um, cardinal by the name of Hugo, he divided up the the Old Testament in, in, uh, in, in uh, chapters. And then uh, he wanted to, to prepare a concordance for the Vulgate. So in order to make his concordance, he divided the Vulgate into chapters all through the, um, all, all the truly born-again believers thought that this was so useful that they sub subsequently continued to use those chapters in future editions of the Bible. Uh, so then, the, then we talked about verses, verse numbers, Where'd they come from? Uh, two centuries later, a Jewish rabbi by the name of Mordecai, Nathan, uh, he, he, he divided the, the chapters into verses. He divided the Old Testament verses that followed Hugo's chapter divisions. So your, old, your English Bible has Hugo's chapter divisions and Nathan's first divisions. And then uh, the New Testament, later, there was a French printer uh, by the name of Robert Stevens, and he began publishing Bibles. He used Hugo's chapters and, and Nathan, Robert, Rabbi Nathan's verses and added himself uh, the verses of the New Testament and published them in 1551. And then 15 years later, uh, about 15 years later after that, Bishop Parker published an entire English Bible with all chapters and all verses. So the original writers, basically the point of all of that is the original writers of the, of the text of the Bible, like Moses, for example. Moses wrote the first five books, but he didn't write in verses, and, and he, didn't, he didn't separate them by chapters. That was done by these guys here that I just mentioned. Um, but it's really interesting when you cross-reference. Doesn't it help to have verses and chapters? I mean, that's the only way we would be able to identify anything. You wouldn't be able to find anything. I don't like Bibles that are paragraph formatted because I can never find the verse that's in the middle of the paragraph. So that's the way it would be for us if, if we didn't have verses and chapters and so on. 
So anyway, so that's a, that's a good thing. And then I talked about the languages. The, the Bible was originally written in three languages. It was Hebrew to begin with in the Old Testament. Uh, there was a few passages that were written in Aramaic, uh, which is sometimes called Chaldean or Aramaic or Syriac in the Old Testament. And, there were, and I went through three, three places in the Old Testament where it's written in Aramaic. So when you're reading it, even though you're reading it in English, it's not even Hebrew, it's, it's, it's Aramaic. First one was in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11. And all of these passages that I'm going to mention, are God is right, speaking to a Gentile ruler. And in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11, the triumphing Gentiles are informed in their own language that their false gods are doomed to complete destruction. God is speaking in that passage and telling the Aramaic kings, your, 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 uh, your false gods are nothing. In Ezra, chapter, uh, starting in chapter 4, and ending in chapter 6 and also a little bit of chapter 7, the Gentile conquerors are informed in their own language of God's continuing interest in his people who are just emerging from captivity, basically saying, I'm going to protect my people and you can't stop me. And then in Daniel chapter 2 through chapter 7, God informs the Gentile monarch, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, in his own language of the, of the rise and the fall of the Gentile world dominion, and he, he's going to collapse, he's going to fall apart. So Aramaic is the language of the reigning empire, imperial power and gives them God's judgment. So that's why he wrote it in Aramaic. He didn't write it all the time. The whole, the whole Bible is, is not Aramaic, but there's a few places specifically where God's making a point. Um, and it's really cool. So no matter who, so Ezra, who is the, you know, the writer of the book of Ezra, Jeremiah, the writer of the book of Jeremiah, Somehow or another, in that verse, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 11, he just slipped in an Aramaic verse. Why did he do that? Because that's how God does things. God communicates that way for a purpose. And that's the cool thing about knowing what we're looking at here. Yes. Yep, it's in Hebrew, except for those particular verses. So as, if you can, I hope you can read the screen, because I can't read the one behind me. Yeah, Ezra chapter 4, verse 8, through Ezra chapter 6, verse 18, and then Ezra chapter 7, verse 12 through 26. So that whole segment is actually, was actually an original, in the original manuscripts, was written in Aramaic instead of Hebrew. So that's the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is written in Greek. Now, Matthew, now, it's really cool. He's, it's written in Greek, but Matthew, like, you know, the, the Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews. And James, when James wrote, he wrote to the 12 tribes scattered. And when Peter wrote, he wrote to the Jews of the dispersion. And when Paul wrote, he wrote to the Hebrews as well. But everything that they wrote was written in Greek. In fact, the only, we don't have any evidence of the New Testament being written in any other language for any other verse at all. Everything that we have is evidence of the Greek, of the New Testament is in Greek. I'll show you some samples of what that looks like. Probably not tonight for the sake of time. But, okay, but the cool thing about all of this, why did God use the languages that he did? So the Hebrews, the Hebrews required a sign. And so God gave him his heart in Hebrew. The Gentiles sought after wisdom. And God gave them his mind in Greek. Isn't that cool? Hebrew is the language of God's heart. The strains of Isaiah, the weeping of Jeremiah, the abruptness of Ezekiel, those are all expressed forcibly in the Hebrew 
where God is in his heart for his people. Greek is the language of the people and reveals God's mind. Aramaic is the language of human dominion or domination. Uh, and so that's why, he, that's why God allowed his book to be written in three different languages. And this didn't just happen for just, just randomness. This, now, now, we're not going to get into the, the, the de- debates about who really wrote the book of Jeremiah. Well, it couldn't have been Jeremiah because there's a passage that says he, it was in Aramaic. So it had to have been somebody who was a, a Gentile. No, God doesn't do that. God, so, so we can't go through um, the Bible and pick and choose and say, this isn't true, this isn't right, this is not there. Okay, so with all of that stuff said, what we did last year, and I blew through really fast tonight, what, do you, what must you do as a responsible believer regarding everything that I've talked about and everything I'm going to talk about in the next several weeks? What should you do? You should do what Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says. What does Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 say? It says, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So what we're trying to do, what I want to do with this, this segment, why we put it in D2 and why it's an expanded version in HBI, why do we put this in here? What, what's, what, are you trying to, what am I wanting you to get out of this course? I want you to get the same thing that Ezra got. What did he get? He got preparation, he got progress, and he got uh, and he got um, uh, an understanding of the, of the Word of God. He had a passion. So three things, preparation, progress, and passion. This, that's what I want you to have for about your Bible. That Bible is given to you by God. The one on your lap, the one that's in your cell phone or on your computer or whatever, that's, that's God's gift to you. I know God's gift is salvation, and I understand all that, but this is another gift. This is your, your Bible is God's gift to you because it is his mind. We talked about that last week. It is his mind. It is, he wants you to know what he's thinking. Not, now we don't know, I mean, if we, if we had everything that God thought, the book, we couldn't carry it. But everything he wanted you to know, he gave to us. And so how do you progress in the Bible? What should you do? The first thing you should do is to, is to seek it out, to seek the law. That's what he said, that's what Ezra said, to seek the law. Seek it out. Number two, live it out. Live, out. live out what the Bible says. I mean, transform your life. It's an amazing when somebody gets saved, their life changes. Why? Because they got the word in them. And then they get discipled, and they start to change. They start to morph. They start to become something different. I know the Bible says in Romans, you know, that uh, I beseech you, brethren, that you, that you therefore... Uh, be transformed in the renewing of, renewing of your mind. And so that's what God wants you to do, to renew it, to live it out. And the third thing is to teach it. Tell it. Tell it, he says. Uh, teach the statutes. Every one of us, I said this last week, every one of us has the capability, the ability, because you have the gift of Holy Spirit in you, you have the ability to teach something about the Bible. If nothing else, you should be able to teach what it means to get saved. If that's all you knew about the Bible, that would be enough. Every one of us should be able to lead somebody to Christ through the Bible. Open up the Bible. Here's a verse. Read this. What does this verse mean? It means you're lost, guys. It means you're, you're, you're in sin. You need to get saved. In the next verse, in the next verse. And then you have five or six verses down. You can, you can teach how to get saved. You can do what Ezra did. So if you want to progress, don't just get this information that I'm giving you. Don't just get it down regarding manuscript evidence. 
don't go about to seek out the what you need to do is go go about to seek out the Lord in his word and then live out the word in your life and finally tell others about what the life of what the word of God has done to you differently that's what we should be doing that's what this is all about that kind of sums up a lot of stuff uh, and so I got about 10 minutes left I'm going to go into the next section what I call preservation and I'm going to talk a little bit about preservation and we're not going to get through it tonight but as I think I think this is, you should be tracking on your notes. I don't know what page you're on, but you should be tracking in your notes now. So God's word is fully preserved. The reason that the modern lukewarm Laodicean church are no longer Philadelphian church, you ever, know, if you've, if you've been under any studies about church history, you know, the last, the last church period is the Laodicean church. We see that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The period before that is the Philadelphian and we go all the way back, right? What we need to be concerned about for us, I mean, why did any of them, why did any of these of these uh, these time periods change? But in particular, what happened to the Philadelphian church? I think I think Brian would would want this church to be a Philadelphian church. What does that mean, actually? Uh, it means that um, that we have kept the word. That's what goes in your blank. That we have kept God's word. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, it says, I know thy works, Jesus speaking. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. And he says in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast from that which is Hold, fa- hold that fast which thou hast. What, what do you have? What, do you, what should you hold fast to? The word. Hold fast to the word. That no man take thy crown. So the definition of preserve. Come on, click over. Here we go. Nope. Yeah, there it is. That's it. Okay. Uh, the definition of preserve is to keep, God, to keep God's word means to guard it from corruption, from loss or injury by keeping your eye on it. Basically, the word preserve, that's what the word preserve means, to keep God's word. Why do we have a Bible publishing ministry? Because we believe that we are responsible as a church, responsible to keep the word, publish the word, and propagate the word. Not just teaching it, but making sure that the word goes forth. I just had the opportunity to, to let one of our missionaries know, uh, K.L. Horvath in, in Hungary, that I'm going to send him 200 Bibles. I got the opportunity to get 200 Bibles to send to him, and we're going to make some John and Romans for him so he can have a, an evangelistic outreach. And so praise the Lord for that because he needs them. He's asking me, can you get me Bibles? I'll see what I can do, and I got them. Thank God for that. The Philadelphian church stopped keeping the word of, of keeping. They stopped keeping the word by the late 1880s, and today we have a world that is floundering without an anchor. We gave our task, this is this, this really frustrates me, we gave our task, our church's task of keeping the word. We, we're supposed to keep the word, keep God's word, but we gave our task to the publishers and the printers who now hold the word of God hostage, and you get it only when, they, when you pay for it with royalties and license fees, but you get what they want you to have, not what God wanted you to have. That, I mean, I'm sorry, but that just irritates me to think about that. The church abdicated the responsibility of keeping the, God's word 
and gave it to the publishing houses, and now the publishing houses do with it what they want, and they sell it back to you for lots of money. And it's frustrating because we shouldn't be doing That's why we give these Bibles away. We make them, we give them. We have not guarded the Bible, and we, because we have not kept the word of his patience, we have not been kept from the hour of temptation. Isn't that amazing? Um, I'm not sure where I've been in the notes here. Scholarship. It's just not clicking. There, there we go. I'm a little bit ahead of myself. Okay, scholarship. Scholarship does not give us any comfort. I talked about these guys real quick, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them here. But we have, we have a couple of guys up here on the pictures. Um, the outsourcing of the, Bible, of the biblical examination began in the late 19th century when German textual scholars Johann Griesbach and Johann Bengel spurred modern textual critical theory. If you want to know what textual critical theory is, go look at the definition I gave you. And they spurred the textual critical theory by reexamining the textus receptus and introducing a number of scientific criteria for determining whether the Bible was really the Bible. That's frustrating. Um, so let me see if I can pass through all of this really kind of quick here. Uh, these two guys, this is uh, Westcott and Hort. You may have heard those names in, in uh, something. But Westcott and Hort, um, they were the ones that created the Greek text that almost every Bible in the world is produced by today, except the King James Bible. They made what's called the United Bible Society Greek text. Uh, these guys were lost men. They didn't believe the Bible, even though they were supposedly translating the Bible for us. And I gave you guys all a list. Uh, so here's, here's that list. It should be in your notes. I'm not going to read them all again. I only got five minutes left here. Uh, but today, the United... the, the, the uh, the Nelson Allen uh, United Bible Society text is the standard Greek text for, for, for study in evangelical seminaries and translation by Bible societies around the world. There's only one Bible society that uses the, te the, the Textus Receptus to produce a Bible, and that's the Trinitarian Bible Society, whom we partner with. Uh, that's, where we, that's where a lot of our scripts are originally comes from them. goes to Bearing Precious Seed, they print them, and then we produce them and send them. Okay, so anyway, all major evangelical Bible translation presented, present, pre printed today, except for the King James Bible, are in some, and maybe in a few others that most people don't even know about, are the United Bible Society text. Many of the who are taught the United Bible Society text are fine evangelical pastors and scholars, but they just, they just don't have the right Bible. So we'll talk more about that later on. Let me give you a couple more quotes of a few more people here. Scholarship, this, is, uh, this was a, a quote by Dr. Alexander Souter, and he defines what textual criticism, uh, you, I think you got that in your note. I'm going to skip that for the sake of time. Um, Dr. Carson, uh, in a King James Version debate, uh, plea for realism, he said this, Paul might, yeah, actually, I'm a, let's see. Yeah, okay, let's deal with this. And Paul might write a letter to the church. They're talking about whether or not, how did we get all of what we got? Paul might write a letter to the church in Colossae while sitting under a house arrest in Rome, which he did. But that letter was soon copied by several within the church and by a few more in the sister church nearby in Laodicea, which is documented in the book of Colossians. 
Perhaps one of the members on a business trip to Macedonia took a copy with him, and while he was in Philippi, he copied out the letter to the, Philippi, to the, Philippine, the Philippians church. At the same time, somebody in the church at Philippi copied out the letter to the Colossians, but one of them made an error. Their point is, is copyist errors. You may have heard that term, copyist errors. Um, in their book, Gen A General Introduction to the Bible, Dr. Giesler and Nix also depend on science of textual criticism to solve various errors that have crept into the Bible. This is one thing they say as well. Since the scriptures have undergone some 2,000 years of transmission, it is only natural to ask how much of the Bible suffered in the process. Or to put it more precisely, is the 20th century Bible, English Bible an accurate representation or reproduction of the first century Greek Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament? The answer to this question comes out comes from the science of textual criticism. Now, we'll spend more time talking about that next week because I don't have time to get into it today. But basically, these guys are tearing your Bible apart. The same arguments that I used to use against people that tried to witness to me before I got saved. Uh, too many people. I mean, how many times did it get copied? How many errors after errors after errors after errors? God took care of it. Here's the question that I asked last week. And for if you were here last week, you know this question already. Is God, how many of you are saved? Okay, everybody raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Are you preserved? Could you lose your salvation? You're preserved. Who's preserving you? God through the Holy Spirit. If God could preserve your soul, don't you think that God could preserve his word to give it to you the way he wants you to have it today in the 21st century? I personally believe the answer to that question is yes. My God is that powerful. He is not so weak that he could let some man corrupt his word by making a mistake and copying the, the wrong word or missing a verse in, in the copying. I don't know. I just think it's crazy that we would even think that. How many of you ever have, have, how many of you have ever just like written out the Bible? Just written it out on a piece of paper? A few. A couple people raise their hand. I do that all the time. When I'm studying a, a book, I write the whole book out by hand, word for word. And when I'm done, I go to chapter one, I write it again because now I'm studying chapter one. I write the whole thing out. Why? Because I want to handle every word of God. So it's an incredible thing. I, I challenge you to do that. I'm gonna, we'll finish here. I don't know what page you guys are on. Make a note what page you're on. I'm on page 17 of my notes, and I don't know what slide we're on. But, um, but in any case, I would challenge you guys to do that. Just, just take a couple of the Psalms and write them out. It's an amazing thing. You're writing. I'm left-handed, so I'm writing, I'm looking, I'm writing, I'm looking, I miss a word. I'm going to go back and scratch it out and write over it again. It's incredible how much God speaks to you when you handle his word that way. I would challenge every one of you to take, just take a book, take a small book. Uh, don't try to write out the whole book of Isaiah yet, uh, but you can get to that point sometime. It'll definitely take you more than 70 hours. Okay, any questions on anything? I apologize for going so fast. I just wanted to try to get to a point where I could move next week and we can we can uh, make some progress okay no no questions okay Let's see where am i at here you know what i'm gonna let me just give you these last couple of things because this is where i want to well i will start on under background that's a good place for you to find your notes okay so i'm not gonna worry about that quote uh, the conclusion of all of this thing is, like all translations, this is what they say, of the Bible made us, they're made by imperfect man, 
this one undoubtedly falls short of its goals. No, it doesn't. The Bible doesn't fall short of its goals. It's, it's exactly what we want. So the final conclusion is not certainty, but ambiguity. That's what they want you. They want you to be ambi ambiguous about whether the Bible is really the word of God or not. Or do you have all of the Bible? Your response about this question should be this. should be found in Psalm chapter 118, verse 8, which I already mentioned before. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. In Second Samuel, Samuel chapter 21, verse 22, verse 31, as for, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust him. And we cannot trust man because he will lie to us, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 4, right? Romans 3, 4 says, uh, yea, let, let God be true, but every man a liar. So we don't need to listen to man. We listen to God. And if you believe that God can preserve your soul, you, you should believe that God can preserve his word and give it to you in the way he wanted you to have it from the beginning. That's a powerful statement. If you can make that statement, I hope you can. The arm of the flesh will fail us, according to 2 Chronicles 32.8. But we can be assured that God is able and has kept and preserved his words for us and that we will still have these preserved words even today, even five years from now. That King James Bible isn't going anywhere. It's always going to be there. Because this church, that's what we, in English, that's what we produce is the King James Bible. That's what we, that's what we ship out. So last thing, I think, despite what the scholars say over thousands of years through thousands of manuscripts and thousands of hands, the simple answer falls into three parts. I know God's word was successfully preserved because, and this should be your response to that, because I know what he is capable, I know who, I know who God is, I know what he is capable of, and I know, that God, I know what God said. I hope you can say that. So this is a definite and solid scriptural basis for the doctrine of the preservation of the Bible. Even though almost no systematic theologies even discuss per preservation. You, you go to the bookstore and get a book on systematic theology, open it up, look for preservation, or uh, you won't find it. They, they don't talk about it. We're about the only people in the world that talk about the preservation of the word of God. Because we believe our Bible is preserved. They don't. Why should they talk about it preserved if they don't believe that the Bible is preserved? Let me give you just a couple of really quick verses. You might want to jot these down because I know these are not in your notes. God says that his words are true, John 17, 17. God says his word is true. God says his word is without error in Psalm 119, verse 140. God says, and he declares that his words contain infallible proofs of truth, Acts chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord of hosts states that he will keep and preserve his word longer than the existence of either heaven or earth, Psalm chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. He also says it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Psalms 12, 6 and 7, Matthew 5, 18. So before we get into the preservation details, we need to look at a backstory or a background of why, why there is a question at all about Bibles and whether or not we have the Word of God. So next week, we'll start with the Word with the, at the point of background in your notes, and we'll, we'll break that all down, and uh, we'll get through that. So we're a little over time. Any questions at all? All right. Praise the Lord. Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ.